Picture with me. The servant of God, the man of God, Moses himself, possessing a heart of wisdom at age 120 years old. Just before his death, he ascends alone with the Lord, and they are outside the land of promise in enemy territory known as Moab. They ascend Mount Nebo, which is located about 10 miles due east of the northernmost part of the Dead Sea. If you can picture that, if you've been out there, if you've read some things about it, it's desolate. It's one of the hottest points on planet Earth. There's no life growing out. The Dead Sea is nothing but salt water. Here he is, up on Mount Nebo, and continue to ascend to the highest peak of Mount Nebo, approximately 20 miles from Jericho. And there they are on that highest peak called Pisgah. Outside the land with this scenic view of the promised land, unmatched and yet untouched, it dawns on him that he will never be able to go there. He stands with the Lord, looking at the promised land to which he has been heading his entire life, and he is not permitted to go in. He cannot cross the finish line and enter into the promised land. Now, with a heart of wisdom, he embraces the reality that this life pursuit will stop short of fruition. He submits to God's decision, but he does not stop from learning. Just before his death, he blesses Israelites, the, the new generation here of Israelites that are getting ready to go into the land through Joshua, and he says these words, There is none like God, O Israel, who rides through the heavens to your help, though through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Oh, happy, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Moses, in Psalm 90, shows how to daily live life in light of death. If you have your scriptures, open them to this poem. You'll find it in the Psalms, Psalms 90. Once you're there, if you would stand with me at the reading of God's precious word, we will begin reading with Psalm 90. starting with the superscription, which is a part of the text, but it's, in, um, it's not numbered. So Psalm 90, we read, A Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever 
You have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of Adam, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to the children. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you once again for preserving a poem written so long ago, probably 1400 B.C., kept, scribes carefully jotting it down through the generations, supervised by your superintending love and care, till it got down into about 400 B.C. and put into the Psalter stitched into the Psalms right at the beginning of book four to help us understand where hope comes from, to help us move through the last enemy, namely death. Grace us with this poem. Grace us with your voice. Grace us with your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Testing, testing, three, two, one, are we excited? <laughs> I am too. So here's a poem, Psalm 90, and the topic of this poem is how, how to live daily life in the midst of death. And so when I was thinking about the, the topic, <clears throat> I like mnemonic devices, simply meaning um, we want to remember some things from a, 
a message. And so I thought of an acronym, extremely creative, HOW, H-O-W, how do we live life daily in the midst of death? Heart of Wisdom is the title of this message. And so as we read through that, you'll, you'll, you'll sense a movement in, in, the, in the poem. You'll see this movement that comes out of his prayer. This is an entire prayer. Moses is an intercessor. He's standing with God and before God for his people, and he's interceding for them. And there are two phrases Two phrases that, that mirror and contrast one another. Look at verse 3. It says, O children of Adam, return, O children of Adam. And then drop down to verse 13, and you see something similar. O return, O Lord. So these two brackets uh, function, if you will, as kind of a, a funnel that moves us into the centerpiece, a center need of the poem, and we'll find that with the, so, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So out of that comes the title, heart of wisdom. Moses already has this heart of wisdom that was given to him by God over so many years of ministry, over so many difficulties of, of funerals and, and sufferings and going through the wilderness and getting to this point where he has a death of a dream and a loss of something he thought he was going to get. And so he pens this and he's crying out for his people Teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. So, as we begin to look at this poem, we, we've got to ask the question, well, if that's the centerpiece, this is the need of the moment, a heart of wisdom, what does it look like? Does it have characteristics? Does it have marks? And so this, this poem has this heart beating and 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 and. and pushing out three activities we can see in this poem. You'll see it up on the, on the screen. A heart of wisdom regards the majesty of God as home, verses 1 and 2. And then it shifts into a lament. A lament is a crying and a crying out. This is a, a, a serious poem. And he laments over the misery of sin and death. And then there's a change. I'm going to go from a, a minor key to a major key. And it's almost like there's this rapid sense of boldly praying. And he's boldly praying for endless vitality. So let's take this one step at a time. We're looking at a heart that's pumping out activities. And it's called a heart of wisdom. And we need this heart of wisdom so that we can face sin and misery, and disappointment, and destruction, and death itself in brand new ways. So verses 1 and 2, it kicks off. And it's a funny start to a poem. It, it doesn't have any finesse to it. It doesn't have any intimacy with it. 
I think that's one thing I like about the Psalms. It, it's, it's very creative and flowing. And this one here starts off with Lord. That's it. Just Lord. And, then, and this is the, the, the title of a generic, like, sovereign, master. So he's praying, and he just comes out, and he says, Master, Sovereign One. And then he starts describing Master and Sovereign One in this high, vaulted, otherworldly kind of way, which is who God is, right? He's eternal. He's outside of time and space. Look, look at how he words it. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There it is. So the striking surprise for me was, first of all, the starting point of, of such a, 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 a bald... Um, acknowledgement, right there it is. But then look at what he says in verse 1. God is our home. He regards the eternality of God, the, the supremacy of God. And he says, you are our dwelling place. So there's something about the Lord, something about Master and Sovereign One who oversees all sin, all suffering, all dying and all death. And he's, he's, he's not pulling back. He, actually, he calls him my home. That there's just no place like home. Where, wherever I'm at, wherever you're at, you're home. You can be out near the Dead Sea where you don't see any life at all, any life at all, scorching heat on a bald head. That's not pleasurable. I'm home. I, I'm home. That's what he's saying about the Lord. He knows something about the master's heart to where he can say, you are my home. A heart of wisdom can discern the nature and attributes of who God is, wherever they're at, whatever they're facing, whatever context and situation and unpromising circumstances they find themselves, they can see something about Master, Sovereign One, and He's home. That's the starting point to daily Live life in light of death. A heart of wisdom regards God as home. And then he launches. Some of the most disturbing verses in the Bible we just read and you just heard. They're extremely disturbing and extremely necessary to provide sobriety, to provide clarity, Remember, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That idiom just focuses on and reflects upon the frailty of life. 
the, the shortness of life, the brevity of coming into this world and leaving this world. Teach us to number our days. We are utterly vulnerable. We're not here long. We're short-term on planet Earth. And if he teaches us that, we will have a sobriety, a clarity, a seriousness about life to face anything that we encounter. A couple years ago, um, I had a heart attack, and Lisa and I were down in Tennessee and um, recovered well. I feel great today. And uh, coming out of that heart attack, coming back into Veritas and finding a lot of love and support and prayers and whatnot, whatnot, uh, a young man came up to me from Veritas, no names, and he said, Pastor Dan, what is the one lesson you learned in your heart attack? And I paused, and I said, that that's a very sweet question, because it's not like, hey, buddy, what'd you learn? <laughs> and I got some of those, too. This one was, what, what did you learn wanting to learn something from an old man who had a heart attack? And I, I could only come up with one word, because when I was down in Tennessee with that heart attack, there was a couple times where... A uh, rapid response team had to come in, and it wasn't very, um, very pleasant. And, and, and the second one had me um, losing somewhat conscience, and it was, it was tunnel vision. I could barely hear the people talking to me, and I was wondering, I was even talking, probably they could hear me, but asking Jesus, is this a corridor? It, it looks like a, a, a tunnel that's dark, and where am I going? Is this the moment? Came out of that, went back into Lisa's arms, and here we are. But what did you learn? The word that came to me was mortality. Perhaps most of my life, I have looked at myself as invincible. I'd never say that because that sounds so prideful. But I would take risks all the time. I would throw myself into harm's way. I loved life. Throw it out there. See what happens. You're not going to die. That's, you know, for other people that, you know, die. But this point was, oh, my word, cut out of the same cloth. There was a, a seriousness and a sobriety that came over me of mortality, fleeting, temporal. That's what we find in 3 through 13. But notice what he says just about the frailty and fleetingness of our nature. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, or Adam, for a thousand years in your sight is but yesterday. Verse 5, you sweep them away with a flood. Verse 8, you set their iniquities before you and our secret sins in light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath and so on and so forth. The reason why he's calling us children of Adam and returning to dust is he's hearkening back to what he wrote under the inspiration of God. He wrote the Torah. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. 
And he says in Genesis 2.19, what God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. We don't trifle with the almighty, everlasting, eternal, glorious God of the ages. That's what he said. That's what he meant. And then as we read the Bible, we get into Genesis 3, 19, and he says to Adam, dust you are, you will return to dust. Dust, dust. All through Psalm 90. And so now Moses thinking through what he wrote, thinking through God's words, he pens it into a poem to remind us that that incident back in the garden wasn't just Adam and Eve. Adam is the representative of all mankind, and where he goes, so we go. And he plunged all of humanity into deep depravity. Sin entered the world through one man, and so Death through sin spread to all people because all have sinned, Romans 5.12. That's critical to understand original sin. It's critical to understand why we suffer, why we're in a dying process, why we die. It's because of the curse that he put in Genesis 3 upon the whole world. You cannot escape it. No medicine, no technology, nothing can escape it. And he calls us, return, O children of Adam. And he says it in verse 3, you said this. Verse 5, you're doing this. Verse 8, you are going to oversee this. The sovereignty and majesty of God superintends down to the finite you and me. And he says, down into the dust you go because of sin and my just wrath and punishment upon sin. This is very disturbing. This is not good news if we're united to Adam and we're just children of Adam, just dust, just going in. This is death without hope. But a heart of wisdom sees into that and sees sees hope right after Genesis 3.19 when he said, you're dust and you're going back to dust. Verse 20, he names his wife Eve. Why did he name her Eve? Because that's the Hebrew word for saying a life producer. So there's a, a contrast with that juxtaposition there where it's death and life. And right there we start seeing, is there hope for any of us? So this wisdom, this heart of wisdom, not only regards God as tender and close, and we can be at home wherever we're at, but now we see the seriousness of the matter, and he means business, and he's not going to lift that curse unless something happens. So it moves down, and now it gets into verse 13, and look at how it shifts. Whenever a poet in the Psalter says how long, you know you're in a genre called a lament. 
And a lament is a deep, sobbing cry and a, and a passionate crying out and a plea. And he says, how long? That's Moses right before his death. He died outside the land. He died in enemy territory. He died in Moab. And I think if I'm reading Deuteronomy 34 correctly, the Lord is the only one that was with him, and he buried him in the sand, and no one knows where his grave is at. It's, it's an amazing passage. Right before that, he cries out to the Lord, How long? Return, O Lord! He's bold. He's getting ready to die, and he just says, return. Don't leave us in dust and ashes. Oh, I hope you have visited the graveyard enough to be able to feel the weight of dust. Because our culture will not speak of death like this. Our culture is either a, an ostrich or a jester. One who just buries the head and will not look at death. Will not talk about death. Death doesn't exist. You don't talk about it. Or just makes light of all of life. And we use euphemisms. It's not death. It's just sleeping. He had a, a hard, long life. And he just needs a good, long rest. And he's just passing away. And he's just in a better place. He's All these euphemisms. Rather, we have to use Psalm 90 and look right into it and understand sin and suffering in light of God's sovereignty and then sense what your heart does. We don't roll over into just passive, submissive acceptance. We, get, we start feeling it. We, we start crying. We start crying out. Do you recall how this grand inspired story ends. The last three words a human being uttered to God is how this book ends. And it's, come, Lord Jesus. That's instructive for us. In light of 3 through 13, how long return, we need you, come, a heart of wisdom. First, regards God as home. So much so that now we're able to cry out and cry for and cry about and just get bold and say, come, have pity. Have pity upon us. And right after 13, the minor key shifts into major. And there's a series of three pairs or couplets and, and anytime you get that in poetry, you almost want to kind of start skipping. It's almost like a little dance that, that's going on in the latter part of this. Uh, listen to it again. There are a series of three pairs. So that's Hebrew poetry and Hebrew parallelism. So they're going to say one line and then say another one, and it means the same, except emphasis. And it says rapid fire, just boom, 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 boom. Speeds up the, the, the tone and the tenor of, the, of the, the poem. And here it ends like this. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you afflicted us for as many years as we have seen evil. Pair one. Pair two. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor or the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. There's the second couplet. And the third and final one, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So he's been praying all along. He's an intercessor. He comes in between and intercedes for God's people. And this heart of wisdom works through that suffering and then pops out and prays boldly for endless vitality. In Deuteronomy 34, a 120-year-old man getting ready to die, it says his sight was undimmed and his vigor unabated. I had to look up that word again to make sure what that one meant. And he is just filled to overflowing with vitality. And he wants this for God's people. So he prays. He prays, gladden us, dazzle us, establish us. Boom, boom, boom. And then the poem's over. So a takeaway from a didactic teaching point is teach us to number our days so we are frail, we are temporal, we are brief, we're here one day and all of a sudden we're gone. Teach us to number our days that we may present to the... A heart of wisdom. So a heart of wisdom regards you as home and then laments over suffering, sickness, sadness, death, and then prays boldly for endless vitality. That's a good message. That's one to write down and repeat and think about. But there's just something missing with that. I got to the end of that and said, there. And then I looked at it and I went, there's something missing with that. So you go back to book four, which is where we're at, and you think whatever starts a book and ends the book, that's got to be highlighting something extremely important. Now, in novels, I will not read the end of the book just for record's sake. But other books, I will read the beginning and the end, and you know kind of what's in the middle. So I did it. Here we have the man of God, Moses, which the Bible says there was no prophet like this who had this intimacy with God, who had a relationship face-to-face with God. None. And then he dies before he gets into the promised land. We need someone other than Moses. And what is he doing in Psalm 90? He's praying. He's praying on behalf of his people. He's praying and interceding. And then you think about Exodus 32. His people left the Lord and left Moses to throw gold into a fire and out pops a golden calf with a stiff neck and they worship him and they rose up eat 
drink, play. It's an awful scene of idolatry. And what did Moses do when he came down? Well, you can read Exodus 32, but the last book in, the last uh, poem in book four is found in 106, Psalm 106. You can go there if you'd like. And it's about Moses. It's not written by him, but it's about him. So we still have Moses and Moses as bookends. And verse 23, therefore he said he would destroy them. That's Yahweh, that's the Lord going to destroy. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him. Now, isn't that interesting? Is there any kind of hint, an echo, a pointing forward of someone else who, like Moses, he died for his people outside the land. There's, there, there's someone who died outside the city, outside the gates, on a place called Golgotha, a skull, And he stood in the breach on behalf of his people and stretched out his arms and absorbed the very wrath of God to avert the wrath and bring forth life-producing grace. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's what he did a long time ago to step in front of that wrath to make atonement for you and me to justify us, acquit us of verses 11 through 13 so we're not swept away that there is hope in the midst of death and dying. But now what is he doing? Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's King Jesus who averted the wrath of God and brought us into justification, no condemnation, and then he holds that status steadily Day after day, heartbeat after heartbeat, interceding, showing forth the the victory of Christ for God to see for all eternity. We are safe. We are cared for by a greater Moses. That happens to be the, the, the music of Psalm 90. So we are asking God to teach us, but in the midst of teaching us a heart of wisdom so that we can discern and ascertain what God is doing in the midst of all of life, even in the midst of death, we then start hearing the music of the gospel. We start seeing Christ as the greater Moses who stood in the breach on our behalf and averted the wrath from our lives so that we could do 14 through 17, crying out for endless vitality. Cheer us. 
Grace us, enable us, and establish the work of our hands. I leave that with you because some of you currently are staring at death or dying. And it's a very difficult moment for you. Some of you will look at death next week or next month or next year or next decade. Some of you will be noticing your sins that were thought were hidden, but according to this passage, is put out right before God. We live our lives before the very face of God, and that will be greatly disturbing to you, and it should be. And we repent and go to Him. But all of that teaching, all of that framework, all of that heart of wisdom sees even more clearly the bigger picture, the very music of the gospel, even in a desert situation like return to dust, O children of Adam. And we see the Christ who did it all for us. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again and again for giving us written revelation. Apart from written revelation, we are stupid. We just can't figure life out. But through this lens, through which we enter into a different world, into the Psalms we go and look around and we see you and we see us and we see our plight and we see your promise and you don't break your promise, there is hope. The Bible says the last enemy is death. Victory over death, thanks be to Jesus and his resurrection. So I just love you for this poem. I ask that it will be ingested deep into our hearts, training our hearts, causing a, a heart of wisdom. But greater still, I pray that that music will so infiltrate our hearts and minds that we will be gladdened, satisfied, and stabilized in the midst of death. We pray this with great confidence. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.